This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just go down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on how criminality just seems to be the norm in the commons these days. Writer Alex Mashakis meets beloved British actor Eddie Marson over a bowl of chips. Author Nick Durden uncovers the curious afterlife of pop stars. And finally, writer Georgina Cull reflects on how the regrets of the dying can remind us how to truly live. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, in the wake of yet another Conservative MP's career that may only be gently paused for the mere crime of sexual assault and the Metropolitan Police making referrals for fixed-term penalty notices for law-breaking Downing Street parties during lockdown, which include our very own Prime Minister and his Chancellor, no less, there is, Marina Hyde points out, something wildly askew with parliamentary ethics. And yet... Despite the expanding number of commons crims, one thing we can all be assured of is, it's just business as usual. This article describes moments of abuse that some listeners might find upsetting. Read by Christine Bottomley. According to Conservative MP Crispin Blunt, the conviction of fellow MP Imran Ahmed Khan for child sexual assault was just based on lazy tropes about LGBT plus people. Amazing, really, that it was the chairman of the all-party parliamentary group on LGBT plus issues who was the only person seemingly making a link between gay men and paedophilia in the wake of Khan being found guilty of assaulting a 15-year-old boy after plying him with alcohol. I want to say, you had one job, Crispin. But I see that, among other things, the Rygate MP is a paid board member of a hotel group. So, you had some jobs, Crispin. But let's be crystal clear here. None of them was you, a former Minister of Justice, claiming that child sexual assault was an event that was minor on any scale. In reality, the only minor involved was the victim. If you missed it, This is the story of the Wakefield MP, Imran Ahmed Khan, who has now been expelled from the Tory party after this week's conviction at Southwark Crown Court. He will naturally be appealing and remaining as an MP while he does that. And we'll come to the section on the expanding number of Commons crims in a bit. Anyway, once the guilty verdict came in, Crispin Blunt, that mangled instance of nominative determinism, opted not to shut up, pipe down, fail to chime in, Instead, Blunt decided that the case was a dreadful miscarriage of justice and promptly posted a lengthy and clearly considered statement calling it nothing short of an international scandal. Even more boggling was the bit where Blunt described the entire business for Khan as this nightmare start to his parliamentary career. Start to it. A way of putting it that reminds us that once we've put this silly business of child sexual assault behind us, Imran should be expected to ascend swiftly toward at least the cabinet without further trifling impediment. Anyway, as of Tuesday morning, Blunt has quit his chairmanship of the APPG after a spate of resignations looking like reducing its next meeting to a room empty but for the presence of Blunt and his self-regard. 
Admittedly, you would still need a room slightly larger than the vehicle assembly room at the Kennedy Space Center, sometimes cited as the largest single chamber on Earth. But it also tells you something about the size of the shit sandwich that he has served himself that the eternally shameless Blunt has actually cottoned on that he has to quit and apologize for his comments. Unless there is something wildly askew with parliamentary ethics, he will now be relieved of the Tory whip, ideally before I begin typing the next paragraph. And yet, I hate to break out the spoilers this soon, but I'm afraid there is something wildly askew with parliamentary ethics, and indeed Westminster ethics beyond the chamber. Starting with those first. The victim explained that he had contacted the Conservative press office before Khan was elected in Wakefield in 2019 and informed them that he had been sexually assaulted by him as a child and that there was a police report of the matter. Nothing whatsoever seems to have been done. I wasn't taken very seriously, he said. She said, well, and that's it. I said, I'm going to the police and she said, well, you do that. Blunt was not the only one to defend Calm. A character statement was provided to his defence by Adam Holloway, who you may recall also provided a character statement for former Tory MP Charlie Elphick, who was convicted of sex offences against two women. Holloway was subsequently forced to apologise for his attempt to stop that statement being made public. Still, he is in, well, you wouldn't call it good company, would you? but there is certainly a real little community of grotesques in the House of Commons. The Sunday Times wrote of the protection racket of MPs who propped up Elphick before he was found guilty and imprisoned, including Holloway, Theresa Villiers, Bob Stewart and Roger Gale. Elphick's wife, Natalie, remains an MP in his former seat, despite having only recently signed a witness statement in which she accused one of the victims of his crimes of lying. Still want more? Tory MP David Warburton has just had the whip removed over multiple sexual assault allegations. In December, his colleague and former minister Andrew Griffiths was found by a High Court judge to have repeatedly raped and abused his wife. Former Labour member Claudia Webb remains an MP despite having been handed a two-year suspended prison sentence for a campaign of harassment against a woman with the trial hearing, this had included the threat of an acid attack. Webb's appealing that, so she remains in the Commons. Any others? Hang on. Rob Roberts sits as an independent, despite having been found to have sexually harassed two members of his staff by an independent panel and the Tory party, respectively, but was bafflingly given his Conservative membership back. Without wishing to go out on a limb here, this feels like quite a lot. There are only 650 MPs. Is this a normal distribution of such abysmal and repulsive behaviour? Alas, here we are at the last paragraph, and I know Crispin Blunt still hasn't been relieved of the whip but the Metropolitan Police has just confirmed it has now made more than 50, 50 referrals for fixed-term penalty notices for law-breaking Downing Street parties during lockdown. And number 10 confirms that two of those are for the actual Prime Minister and the actual Chancellor. Just so endlessly, endlessly impressive. Then again... Most homes and most businesses broke the law in the pandemic. We know this because it was recently stated as fact by a hugely versatile authority figure. His name? Crispin Blunt. What a dazzling run of public service it continues to be. That was Sexual Assault. Regrettable, but no impediment to a parliamentary career by Marina Hyde. Read by Christine Bottomley. Next. From playing an abusive husband in the low-budget film Tyrannosaur to a former boxer in the Hollywood series Ray Donovan, Eddie Marson has always pursued a varied career. Now, as he returns to screen as John Darwin, 
the real-life former biology teacher who faked his own death, Eddie tells writer Alex Mashakis about how his success was all down to a lucky break. This article includes offensive language around race. Read by Joplin Sibtain. Eddie Marson is hugging everyone. The waiters, the cooks, several strangers. We're in E. Polici, a cafe in East London near to the council flat in which Marson grew up. He's been coming here since 1972 when he was four. Pointing at some shiny wood panelling, he says, My brother-in-law did that polishing. And at a window. That's where they served ice cream, gelato style. Tea arrives at our table. Then a bacon sandwich. Then a plate of chips Marson didn't order. A gift from the kitchen. Asked why he picked this cafe as a place to meet, he says, Basically, I thought to myself, Well, if you want to talk to me, we can meet here. Because, well, this is my hometown. It's still very much a part of my life. Marson, the character actor's character actor, is 53 now, deep into a chameleonic career that has taken him from East London to Hollywood. He lives in Chiswick, four kids, wife of 20 years, middle-class life, but he still comes back. I was here the other day to give a eulogy, he says. A next-door neighbour had died. It's funny in these flats. Someone fixes your washing machine, someone else does the painting and decorating, and people think, Oh, Eddie's an actor. He'll do the words. So I do the words. While he eats his sandwich, the cafe's owner walks over and asks why Marson's come in. We're doing an interview, Marson says. Oh, are you? The owner says. Then addressing me. I remember him when he was little. He's never changed. He's still the same. Marson frowns. I mean, he's got better looking. Though he is capable of remarkable range, of depicting sweethearts as well as terrorists, Marson is best known for playing serial abusers. Some of his most memorable scenes in the Paddy Considine drama Tyrannosaur, in which he urinates over Olivia Coleman, and in Mike Lee's Happy Go Lucky, in which he plays Sally Hawkins' furious driving instructor, involve him granting humanity to grotesque men, so that their motivations become comprehensible, if not relatable. If you play someone as blatantly evil, he says, that's not real. Human beings aren't like that. What's most interesting is to play someone who does evil things, who makes an audience think, I understand. That's frightening. During a recent panel discussion organised to promote his latest project, The Thief, His Wife and the Canoe, an ITV drama, Marson acknowledged his typecasting. Toxic masculinity, he said, letting off a charming. <laughs> it's what I do. Then he listed actresses he's played opposite in unsettling roles. Olivia Colman, Shirley Henderson, Sally Hawkins. I've abused them all. At the cafe, he jokes, I think there's a WhatsApp group. In Thief, Marson plays John Darwin the real-life former biology teacher who faked his own death to avoid bankruptcy, coercing his wife Anne to claim for his life insurance. You'll remember the Canoe Man headlines. In the retelling, Anne is played by Monica Dolan. While filming, the pair used lilting northeast accents, even between takes. At the panel discussion, Marson joked about Dolan. This is the first time I've heard her speak. Thief is another tale of domestic abuse, though the manipulation is more subtle and less physically overt, a gradual seizure of control. In Marson's previous projects, including Tyrannosaur, the character was so extreme, so horrible, that there was a comfort in thinking, that's not me, he said. But recent depictions of abuse have become more nuanced, the evil more difficult to discern, a fog of psychological grey areas. He thinks Thief brings abuse into the living room and wonders whether it might prompt viewers to reassess their own marriages. I've been asked to play parts now where you think, oh, is that me? He says, do I do that? A little bit. Marson describes Darwin as someone who expected better from life than the middling existence he's achieved, and who is struggling to come to terms with his disillusionment. An embodiment of what we're dealing with, with a lot of men, he says. When we move on from E. Polici, and find a quieter spot around the corner, 
I ask him to elaborate. The thing about men is that they're encouraged to think that they can do anything, and reality shows them that they can't, and some men can't deal with that, and they become deceitful, they become liars and narcissists. Only now is society beginning to acknowledge the spectrum of human existence, Marson thinks. But we've been brought up in systems that don't acknowledge that spectrum. They've been binary, very black and white, and a lot of men have created a narrative for themselves based on that binary way of looking at things, and now they're having a panic attack. In short, the world is changing, and change is difficult, and men are finding it more difficult than women. I ask, how do we fix it? I don't know whether you can institutionally, he says. You have to confront it. Then he adds, playing John Darwin was interesting because he was someone who lies. And doing that makes you realise that when people lie, they're thinking you're not as smart as they are. They think of themselves in 3D and everybody else in 2D. He brings up Partygate. I was in post-production for Thief while Boris Johnson was standing in front of Parliament. And I thought, you think that you're three-dimensional and that we're two-dimensional and that we can't see through you. That's a form of narcissism that I think comes from trauma. It's very human. I think there are some human beings who have been so traumatised that they have to believe in narcissism as a way to protect themselves. What kind of trauma, I ask? He replies jovially, I don't know, I wasn't there. Given how many appalling characters Marson has played, it's easy to worry that some of his on-screen behaviour might have tumbled into his real self. It hasn't. In person, he's genial and considerate of others, and he talks to strangers as though they were family. Sally Hawkins describes Marson as pure joy and all heart, and an anchor to the earth. While filming Happy Go Lucky, Marson told me off for not having all my admin together, Hawkins wrote in an email and then hooked her up with his accountant. Olivia Coleman said, he's bloody lovely and utterly magnetic to watch, adding, he makes you want to up your game. Ethan Hawke, who appeared with Marson in the production of Moby Dick, said, he's ferociously honest and clear as an actor and a man, someone who tries to do what is right. Moby Dick was filmed in Nova Scotia aboard a ship made in the 1860s, and production was tough, terrible food, Few places to hide from the wind. Some actors could get nasty, Hawke said. But if someone tried to degrade anyone else, Eddie would let them know a more acceptable path immediately. At dusk every evening, the cast would row themselves back to shore, Hawke recalled, and Marson would lead us all in old sea shanties. When a woman at Ipolici tells Marson she's recently been accepted into drama school, he pulls her into a hug and says, I'm proud of you. She replies less ominously than this sounds. I'm coming for you, Eddie. Marson knows what it means to receive similar news. In his 20s, he applied to several acting courses and was rejected by all of them. When he later snuck onto a program and began performing Chekhov, he watched bigger parts go to the good-looking posh boys, of which he wasn't one. I'd always play the old fella with gout, he recalls, along with several other characters simultaneously. They used to call me Captain Velcro. Marson's physical appearance, smallish, barrel-like, with Mr. Tumnus ears, has played a significant role in his career. When I ask why he's so often required to play terrible characters, he says, someone explained it to me. In Greek theatre, someone who is aesthetically exact was seen as a manifestation of morality, and someone like me, who isn't handsome, who's kind of weird-looking, is a manifestation of immorality. In many of his roles, Marson plays the other. Even now, he's achieved leading man status. The thief, his wife and the canoe is narrated by Anne Darwin, not John, becoming her story and othering him. I rarely play us, he says, drawing the quotes. I play the characters who we aren't. Sometimes I suspect it's because the vanity of an audience will be challenged if they have to think they're me. Marson talks matter-of-factly about the way he looks. I ask, does it bother you? I couldn't give a... He stops himself. My wife's hot, he continues by way of explanation. I earn a good living. I'm loved. If I was in France, I'd be a sex symbol. Some of those actors are ugly bastards. Sometimes, though, he is forced to confront his appearance. I did a film with Idris Elba, he says, referring to the Fast and Furious spin-off Hobbs and Shaw. 
was looking at him and looking at me and thinking, now there's a film star. Jesus Christ, I needed therapy after that. Like Elba, who also grew up in East London, Marzen has been vocal in calling for better opportunities for working class actors. His upbringing, the way he drops the E in the word terrific, has impacted the roles he's been offered as much as his appearance. Look at the early stuff, he says. It was always MAGA or criminal for the bill or crime monthly. That's all I ever did for years, even though I knew I was better than that, that I was being limited by someone else's definition of me. Marson would like to say he's escaped prejudice, but he hasn't. I've just been asked to do a film with a Brazilian director, he says. But when I went to see him, he said, well, the people over here told me that you're very working class. He spreads his arms as if to ask, what can you do? He's been told, that's what Eddie is, he goes on. That's what you have to overcome. Early in his career, Marson realised he would need to develop a following in the US where his class background was less limiting. I remember doing the second season of Ray Donovan, he says, of the popular American drama he starred in for several years. Being there, having the house, going to work with Liev Schreiber and John Voigt, and my agent called me and said the BBC were doing a production of Richard III with Benedict Cumberbatch and that they were going to offer me a part. Now, I know Richard III. I've toured Europe playing Richard III. And when the offer came through, it was Thief with two lines. I thought, but I'm here. He declined the role. There's something about this country, he goes on. Something about all of us here. We live and breathe these definitions of ourselves. It's not an us and them thing. I don't buy all that. Some of my best friends are very privileged, great people. But the class system is embedded. Marson repeatedly refers to East London as his culture, and he rails against the damaging belief that poor neighbourhoods are only good enough to escape from. When I started doing interviews, people would ask, how did you get out? And I'd say, what makes you think I did? It would be understandable if he tried. Marson describes his upbringing as chaotic. His parents' marriage was fraught and it was often unclear if they had stayed together. Uncertainty rolled in and out of the family home. Not good for kids, he says. Marson has three older sisters. When his parents eventually divorced, Marson briefly became estranged from his father who was given a restraining order and he found refuge with a family of St Lucian immigrants that lived nearby with whom he began to spend his time. The people I grew up with, people on the estate, all of us had chaos in our lives, he says. A lot of us had fathers with orders not to come anywhere near the house. It was a breakdown of family. But all of us, because of the chaos, we had aspiration. It created a volition in us. From a place of safety, Marson began to question the orthodoxy of the white working class, he says. Through childhood, his father's friends would tell him, You don't want to hang around with those black bastards. He winces. Well, those black bastards loved me. They literally embraced me. He goes on. From a very early age, there were people who told me, You have to be this. Initially, it was the working class racists. As I got older, it became middle class casting directors. And there was something in me, as a child, that felt threatened by that almost to the point that it traumatised me, because it meant I'd lost the ability to define my life, to control my life. I ask if he's always played different characters as a means to escape his upbringing. Nah, he says, but I was confused. At 16, he briefly became a born-again Christian. My mate's brother showed us a video about the book of Revelations and we all shit ourselves, but it didn't last long. One day I fell asleep in the back of a coach coming back from Birmingham with them and I woke up and this bloke who was leading us was saying OK, next week we're going to Leicester Square to save homosexuals. I remember thinking, save them from what? Looking back, Marson believes he had a bit of a breakdown after his parents' divorce. I had a lot of questions, he says. One day he was asked to play an extra in a film shooting in the East End. I saw Jamie Foreman do a scene and I thought, I can do that. That's what I want to do. I want to become an actor. At the time, Marson was working in a menswear shop owned by a local man he still refers to formally as Mr. Bennett. As soon as I got a job there, people from the area were like, what's the fiddle? Give me a couple of shirts. 
The comedian Mickey Flanagan, who grew up nearby, recently messaged Marson. Eddie, I've got a jumper I bought from you in 1984. Never worn it. Can I get a credit note? Marson describes Bennett as an incredibly moral man and a father figure who kind of changed my life. When he told Bennett he wanted to become an actor, Bennett offered to pay for his drama school fees. Without the money, he couldn't have afforded to go. Marson eventually asked Bennett to be the best man at his wedding, but the night before, he had a stroke, collapsed, and smashed the side of his face. Marson followed the ambulance to the hospital. When they arrived, a doctor said, He's 82, his heart's okay, he'll survive, but we've had to put a plate in his face. Then they wheeled him in on a trolley, and he sits up and he looks at me and he says, Eddie, I'll do anything to get out of making a speech. Bennett died while Marson was shooting Moby Dick. Hawk, on hearing the news, just sat with me, didn't say anything while I cried, Marson recalls. Hawk said, I remember him suffering. Zero self-pity. The family knew it was coming. My wife said to me, you have to go and see him before you go. So I drove to the hospital and I went in and he was laying there in bed and I held his hand and I said, I love you. I owe you everything for my family, my career, the house, the mortgage, the debt, the ulcers, everything. <laughs> and he was laughing. He was a very funny man. We laughed all the time. He died a week later. I asked what would have happened if they hadn't met, if Mr Bennett hadn't paid for Marson to study acting. I think I would have suffered incredible depression, he says. Incredible depression. You would have been unfulfilled, I say. He nods, then says, unfulfilled. That was, in France, I'd be a sex symbol. Eddie Marson on Looks, Lucky Breaks, and Playing Angry Men by Alex Mashakis. Read by Joplin Sibtain. We'll be back after this short break. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, have you ever wondered what happens to pop stars when the hits dry up and the fame fades away? Writer Nick Durden has been exploring the afterlife of stardom. Here he recounts his conversations with Robbie Williams, Lisa Mafia, Billy Bragg and many more about what it's like to return to the margins after a spell in the spotlight. Read by Joplin Sibtain. In her classic memoir, Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, 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 Viv Albertine recounts not only the time she spent as a punk during the 1970s in her pioneering band The Slits, but also documents her life after the band had ended. This is unusual. Most music books don't venture into this territory, tending to stop when the hits stop, thereby drawing a veil over what happens next. The unspoken suggestion seems to be that were it to continue, the story would descend helplessly into misery memoir. The pain I feel from the slits ending is worse than splitting up with a boyfriend, Albertine wrote. This feels like the death of a huge part of myself, two whole thirds gone. I've got nowhere to go, nothing to do. I'm cast back into the world like a sycamore seed spinning into the wind. I loved Albertine's book. And it was this one paragraph in particular, I think, that propelled me into writing my own book on this very subject, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars. I wanted to know what it's like when that awkward new me chapter begins, where anonymity replaces infamy, and the ordinary reasserts itself over the extraordinary. 
The life Albertine forged for herself after punk was complicated, as life tends to be. She returned to education, studying film, underwent IVF, and endured both illness and divorce. But she never fully let the music go, because musicians mostly don't. They can't. I finished her book, convinced she was a hero. But then perhaps all pop stars are. They're fascinating individuals, compelling and gifted, not short of self-confidence, and, yeah, occasionally a little odd too. Artists may not always be the best people to operate the heavy machinery of adulthood, but they remain tenacious, driven and inspirational. They dared to dream, and then went out and made that dream come true. But falling back down to earth in this business is an inescapable certainty. Like sportsmen and women, they peak early. A songwriter once told me, citing Bob Dylan, that artists tend to write their best songs between the ages of 23 and 27. Despite his enduring success, Dylan had suggested he couldn't write the songs he wrote in his 20s in his later years, at least not in the same way or with the same instinct, largely because after that early momentum has fizzled out, things settle down into simply the thing that you do, with all the humdrum ennui associated with that. So what's it like, I wondered, to still be doing this job at 35 and 52 and beyond? What's it like to have released your debut album to a global roar and your 12th to barely a whisper? Why the continued compulsion to create at all, to demand yet more adulation? Frankly, what's the point? And so, armed with a batch of potentially indelicate questions, because who likes to discuss failure, I began to reach out to musicians from various genres and eras, those who hadn't died young, but were still here, still working, to ask them what it was like in the margins. A great many never bothered to respond. Others enthusiastically agreed, only later to bail out. The guitarist from one of America's most stylish modern rock acts, someone whose skinny jeans no longer fit quite as well as they used to, was initially keen, but cancelled at the last minute because his manager informed me his head just isn't in the right place to discuss this right now. It's a difficult subject. Those who did speak, however, 50 in total, from Joan Armour Trading to S Club 7, Franz Ferdinand to Shirley Collins, were endlessly revealing and candid in a way they would never have been at the peak of their fame. I sensed they enjoyed the opportunity to talk again, to be heard above the din of Ed Sheeran and Adele and Stormzy. All were humble, replete with wisdom, resolute. Many were divorced too, at least one was high. They're the true Stoics, I realised. We could learn a lot from them. Each individual story in popular music has a common beginning, because in the beginning, all is gravy. In 1987, seemingly overnight, Terence Trent Darby became the most arresting new pop star of his generation. To hear him sing songs such as If You Let Me Stay and Sign Your Name was to bear witness to the art of oral seduction. The knees buckled. He became terribly famous terribly quickly. He was 25. I wanted adulation and got it, Darby tells me, almost 35 years later, by now working under the name Sananda Maitreya. But I had to die to survive it. If his ascendancy had the stuff of legend about it, then so did his demise. Like Prince before him, he began to feel himself capable of anything. Each new song he composed a masterpiece. His record company felt differently. It wanted hits, not ornate rock operas. But Darby was not someone easily restrained. And so, in pursuit of his muse, he spent the early 90s reportedly living the life of a tormented recluse in a Los Angeles mansion. When I speak to him, which takes six months to arrange, he suggests he was grateful to move on from such excess and artifice. I didn't give a fuck about it then, and even less about it now that memory has been kind enough to allow me to forget most of it. Prince had died, Michael Jackson too. Darby was still here, albeit with a name change, prompted by a dream he had in 1995 to help him better bury the past. Today, Maitreya lives in Milan, is happily married with young children, and writes, records, and produces his own music, which he releases on his own label, 
behaving as he damn well pleases. In 2017, this meant issuing a 53-track album with at least one song dedicated to a first-hand experience of impotence. I'm a fellow who likes to drink and smoke. It used to once hang down to the tops of my shoes. Now all I've got is these limp dick blues. The question of whether anyone is listening anymore doesn't seem to trouble him, I'm Julie. When I ask what, if anything, he misses from the old days, he replies, I miss the unbridled, bold, naked stupidity of youth's vibrant electric hubris. During the same era, Kevin Rowland found himself in a comparable position. I've been too confident, too arrogant, the Dexys Midnight Runners singer says. I thought everyone would hear our new music and go, wow. The fact that they didn't anymore left him bewildered. Dexys were one of the most brilliant bands of the 80s, with a slew of hits, several number ones, and an eternal classic in Come On Eileen, a song legally required to be played at every wedding disco on mainland Britain ever since. But by the end of that decade, Roland wanted to develop his craft and leave boisterous sing-alongs behind. His label, and quite possibly some members of his own band, simply wanted more of the same. It wasn't broke, so why fix it? But Roland tells me, I just knew that I couldn't write the same songs again, and so I never even tried. Their new music took on an increasingly introspective tone, mournful and ruminative. Not ideal for radio, in other words. The band were dropped, they split up, and the singer found solace in drugs. Whatever money he'd made was soon lost, and before a stint in rehab came the need to sign on. A profound humbling. At the Dole office, his fellow unemployed recognised him and broke into a rendition of Come On Eileen, half hoping he'd join in. I could have done without that, he notes. The passing of fad and fashion is rarely the artist's fault. In a 1997 piece for The New Yorker, the American essayist Louis Menand suggested that stardom cannot last longer than three years. It's the intersection of personality with history a perfect congruence of the way the world happens to be and the way the star is. The world, however, moves on. To her credit, Suzanne Vega tried to move with it. It was 1990, and by this stage she'd enjoyed huge success for three years. This was no mean feat, because her unadorned acoustic songs stood in direct contrast to the more brash preoccupations of pop in the 80s, a time when Madonna ruled. But by 1987, Vega recalls, every door was open to me, every gig I did sold out. And so, in 1990, she announced her most ambitious tour yet. Rather than her usual requirements of an acoustic guitar and a single spotlight, she now had a set designer, trucks and buses, a crew, a backing band, catering, a backup singer, a woman to do the clothing. This was a big deal for me. On the tour's opening night in New York, the venue was just a third full. I thought, where's the rest of the audience? Maybe they're still out in the lobby. There was no rest of the audience. They'd already moved on. Vega herself had done nothing wrong here, but rather done things a little too right. The industry had taken note of her earlier success, reminding them of the marketable power of a singer in touch with her emotions, and so had invested in a new batch, Sinead O'Connor, Tanita Tickerham, Tracy Chapman. These artists rendered the scene's godmother abruptly superfluous. Vega's tour, hemorrhaging money, was cut short. When she arrived back at JFK, she looked out for the car her record label would always send to collect her. But there was no car. Not anymore. I took a taxi, she says. But Vega, like Maitreya and Roland, didn't throw in the towel simply because others had come along to steal her thunder. She simply, and by necessity, pivoted towards cult status, which at least came with the safety belt of a loyal fan base that still sustains her today. There are benefits to staying in your lane. Would I like another hit, Vega wonders? I wouldn't say no, but I'm not going to chase it. The writing on the wall is only easy to read in hindsight. At the time, it's all a blur. I approached the wiliest of pop provocateurs, Bill Drummond of the KLF, an act that, at the height of their success in 1992, disbanded and then deleted their entire back catalogue with the sole intent of swiftly disappearing up their own fundament. 
When I ask him what an artist should do once the spotlight swings elsewhere, he writes me a play, or rather two, in case the first one's shite, he helpfully explains. The plays reference Prince and 80s hitmaker Nick Kershaw and the way both leaned on the public's endless appetite for nostalgia in order to stretch out their careers. Drummond prefers a more flamboyant gesture. The very moment any singer fails to crack the top 40, they should offer themselves up for sacrifice. The failed pop singer will be given the choice of a noose hanging from a gallows or a razor-sharp guillotine, he writes. This may well suit self-sabotaging provocateurs, but other artists have less appetite for creative suicide. It is true, though, that a future of looking back, of existing solely on nostalgia, is a creative cul-de-sac. An eternal Groundhog Day where China in your hand is number one forever. Steps should be taken to avoid such a fate. When Mancunian stalwarts James, for example, split in 2001, frontman Tim Booth moved to Northern California where he became a shaman and studied the practice of consciousness expansion. He only rejoined the group on the condition that they wouldn't become a heritage act, which for me is the kiss of death. After singer Roshin Murphy had navigated the end of her pop duo Maloko and then attempted to steer an idiosyncratic solo career with a determination Orson Welles might have admired, she moved to Ibiza to focus on two things, motherhood and the Mediterranean. Sometimes it's nice to just relax, you know, she says. Billy Bragg realised he needed to take a pause from his career in 1990 once Margaret Thatcher had been toppled. Bragg's antagonism towards the former Prime Minister had been his whole raison d'etre after all. With her gone, what then? It was time for a rethink, he tells me. He got married and had a child and later eased himself back into music by then sporting a beard and plying the kind of alt-folk that would allow him to both age gracefully and bring his fans, who were also ageing, along for the ride. Occasionally, he writes comment pieces for The Guardian, largely to keep the spark alive. He still pops up on picket lines too. Why? Because I'm Billy Bragg. That's what I do. If all bands crave headlines in their early days, then So Solid Crew achieved all the wrong ones. It became increasingly easy to overlook the musical achievements of the first UK garage act to break through into the mainstream back in the early 2000s, because what happened offstage became far more compelling. Several live shows were blighted by violence, while members G-Man and Asher D, the latter to find fame later as the top boy actor Ashley Waters, were arrested for possessing handguns. Once So Solid imploded, its sole female member, Lisa Mafia, a single mother, needed to start earning again, as she'd spent everything she'd accrued. Three cars in the driveway, so much jewellery, clothes in abundance, limousines, she recalls. She launched a short-lived solo career, record label and clothing line, but her brand appeared in terminal decline. So she started her own booking agency, with herself as the sole employee, calling up clubs across the country, masquerading as the personal assistant to one Lisa Mafia, formerly of So Solid Crew, now an international solo star and occasional fashion designer. Her PA, Celine, was tasked with asking club's management if they'd be interested in a personal appearance. The bookings came in almost immediately, Mafia beams. I hustle. Never been afraid to hustle. She now runs a beauty salon in Margate. Mafia has achieved what many former pop stars don't and what Albertine for a long time couldn't replacing one satisfying career with another. The majority find themselves instead with an embarrassment of yawning time on their hands. How to fill it? Some I speak to use that time as an opportunity for personal growth. David Gray and the Darkness's Justin Hawkins discuss the growing conviction that they might have autism and ADHD respectively, both convinced this played a key part in the art they made. I love upheaval. I love emotional disasters and mismanaging every relationship I've ever had, Hawkins suggests, which sounds less like introspection than a robust embracing of who he is, sod the consequences. When the Boomtown Rats abruptly reached their dead end in 1985, singer Bob Geldof wasn't happy. He felt they still had much more to offer, but it was Duran Duran's turn now. Geldof slunk home, drew the curtains, and I thought, that's it? 
It's over. Had the best years of my life already passed. I was 30. What a brutal business pop music is. It was during a quiet night in, when by rights he should have been straddling a microphone stand on a stage somewhere glamorous and crucially far away, that he happened on Michael Burke's report from a famine-ravaged Ethiopia on the news. This gave him an unexpected new focus. But here's the thing. Even after feeding the world and later a hugely successful career in business, launching the TV production company Planet 24, investing in tech, all Geldof wanted to do was to go back to music. In 2020, the Boomtown Rats, average age then 66, released a new album. In my passport, my profession is listed as musician, says Geldof, not saint. The Boomtown Rats reformed because bands do. It's practically mandatory. When Tanya Donnelly of 90s US indie darling's belly quit after winning a Grammy and promptly suffering burnout, she craved normal work and became a doula. When 10,000 Maniacs' Natalie Merchant grew tired of being a marketable commodity, she quit for the quieter life of a solo artist and was then duly horrified when her debut album, 1995's Tiger Lily, sold five million copies, because then came the treadmill again. The next time she tried to retire, she did so more forcefully, and now teaches arts and crafts to underprivileged children in New York State. I look at people like Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney, she says, referring to the way both legends continue to tour, and I think to myself, if I were you, I would just go home and enjoy my garden. It's a question of temperament, clearly. And yet, just as Donnelly would ultimately return to her old band, Merchant is also entertaining the idea of new music. Maybe, she says, my daughter is off at college now, so I do have more time to myself. But why? Why do they all come back? Perhaps because nothing else compares. It must be nice to be quite so loudly loved. Even those who are scarred by their experiences still curiously hanker after it. Child reggae stars' musical youth were a ray of early 80s sunshine when their single Pass the Duchy sold five million copies around the world. Once their fame elapsed, and it did so with breathtaking speed, one member, Patrick Waite, developed drug problems, turned to crime and died of heart failure at 24. Another, Kelvin Grant, became a recluse. Singer Dennis Seaton, a born-again Christian. It saved me, he tells me now in his mid-fifties and a father of four, Seaton is the chairman of the Ladder Association Training Committee, alerting builders to the dangers of working at altitude without sufficient protection. Which is funny, I know, he shrugs, as if the idea of a former pop star now doing an ordinary job boggles the mind. At weekends, he still tours nightclubs to sing his famous song to crowds of people who want nothing else from him and are simply grateful to be in his orbit. To have touched so many people, let me tell you, is humbling, he says. Robbie Williams sums it up well. I felt very driven in the early days, in competition with the world and with myself. It remains a big draw, of course, but 30 years in, he's no longer guaranteed hits and is now more likely to be played on smooth radio than BBC Radio 1. But that sense of competitiveness never fully recedes. He tells me the new songs he's writing are sounding like David Bowie and Lou Reed, experimental and avant-garde. But do I unashamedly want to still be one of the biggest artists in the world? Yeah, I do. And so he, and so many like him, linger in those margins, watchful for other opportunities, biding their time. They judge TV singing competitions and appear on reality shows, and wait for the world to turn slowly on its axis to bring them back into fashion. Eventually, everything comes back into fashion. The midlife pop star's best virtue, then, is patience, and the conviction that the best might be yet to come. I've had an interesting first half of my life, Williams notes. I'd like an interesting second half, too. That was... That's it? It's over? I was 30. What a brutal business. Pop stars on Life After the Spotlight Moves On by Nick Durden. Read by Joplin Sibtain. Finally, after nearly dying from an ectopic pregnancy, 
writer Georgina Skull realised she was unhappy in her life. She'd been given a second chance, but she didn't know what changes to make. So Georgina decided to interview people who were facing death to see if she could learn from the things they wished they'd done differently. This article touches on aspects of terminal illness that some people may find upsetting. Read by Christine Bottomley. I'm not sure I ever fully appreciated my life until I nearly lost it. In fact, I'm sure I didn't. On the surface, everything was good. I was married and living overseas with our two-year-old daughter. There was food on the table and a roof over our heads, but it felt as if I was drifting, constantly waiting for my real life to start. And then, at 37... I had an ectopic pregnancy which ruptured and I nearly died. That was ten years ago. It should have been the start of my second chance, the jolt to get me going, but I'm afraid it wasn't. I was alive, but I still wasn't really living. I still seemed to be stuck in all the things I hadn't done over the years rather than enjoying all the things that I did. As the days and weeks passed, my regrets just grew. Part of the problem was that my list of good things, the marriage, the family, wasn't completely accurate. There was a lot of good in my life, but there was other stuff going on as well under the surface. I was heading towards 40 without a career, in a relationship that didn't quite work, and living in a place that didn't really feel like home. Basically, I was unhappy. Why do we drift through life, planning for tomorrow but not living for today? Why do we stay in relationships that no longer make us content or in jobs that fill us with dread? Why do we allow our doubts to stop us from trying new things or let people treat us so badly? I wanted to find out the answers to all of these questions because I wanted to live differently. I didn't want to be stuck anymore. I wanted to work out what we regret and how we could all learn to regret a little bit less. So, after yet more drift, we moved back to the UK and I decided to face it head on. I decided that rather than look to myself for answers, I would look outward and listen to other people facing their own mortality. Not really people who were recovering from a near-death experience like me, but people who were living with a terminal or life-limiting illness, or were over the age of 70. People who wanted to talk about the choices they made and the things they wanted the rest of us to realise before it was too late. I put up notices in local libraries and community centres. I got in touch with support groups and online forums, asking those who wanted to talk to get in touch. And they did from all over the world and from many different backgrounds. The youngest was 28 and the oldest was 94. We met in person, connected over the phone and in some cases, when talking was too hard for them, via email. And what started as a mission for answers has turned into a book. A collection of 21 stories of regret from around the world to help those of us who find ourselves at a similar crossroads in life. Stories about love, family and secrets, about last words spoken and regrets within grief. And that is what happened to me. I listened to what everyone had to say and then listened to myself and finally managed to move on. Alan had spent decades building a successful career, chasing promotion after promotion but after he was diagnosed with an incurable brain tumour at 49, it took him less than six months to realise that he had wasted most of his life and wished he'd taken a different path. Sid was 73 when I spoke to him and living with asbestosis on his lungs. He told me how, in his early 20s, he had ended a relationship with a woman whom he would soon regard as the love of his life. He went on to spend the next 50 years wondering what could have been and regretting his decision to leave. Anthea had been raised to think she wasn't enough, that she'd to diet to be slimmer and use sunbeds to be browner, sunbeds that would lead her to develop terminal melanoma in her mid-40s, which then spread to her major organs and 
sadly cut her life short. Katie was diagnosed with bowel cancer at 31 and died just a year later, leaving behind two young children and a loving husband. Alan taught me that we shouldn't worry about the things we can't control. Sid showed me that you should always follow your heart or risk losing it. Anthea explained that we are enough just the way we are, even though we can't always see it in ourselves. And Katie wanted us to appreciate all that we had, but probably took for granted, just as I had all those years ago. She wanted the privilege of growing old with a partner and the chance to watch her kids grow up. But when she knew she was running out of time, it became clear that it was the little moments in life that she would come to treasure the most. That there was no bucket list to tick off or grand plans left to do. That they all fell away when the reality of her situation became undeniable. That she just wanted to be there to see her kids enjoy Christmas to help celebrate their birthdays and to go to the beach and watch them play. Katie wanted us to appreciate the everyday moments because in the end, she felt they were the things that we will remember and cherish and hold the closest. And that's what I realised after talking to all these different people, that when we look back, what we treasure the most isn't the grand holidays, the promotions or the adventures I'd always long for, That, in the end, it's those little moments that we dismiss so easily that make our lives so very, very big. My life isn't perfect now. Hard moments still exist. Tricky decisions still have to be made and I still find myself worrying that I'm going to fail or not be good enough. But my regrets don't consume me anymore. They don't fill all my quiet moments because I can see them for what they are. Decisions made for the right reasons at the right time and choices taken to try to rewrite history in the situations I've found myself in. And once you can see the connections between your actions and the reasons for them, somehow they feel less overwhelming. They feel less like a sign that you failed and more like a normal human reaction you can learn from. Now I listen to my gut. Now the choices I make no longer bind me to a long list of second guesses. I took control of my life and started to make all the changes that were long overdue, thanks to listening to the advice of the people I spoke to. I'd been estranged from my mum for a number of years and I managed to find a way for us to reconnect before it was too late. I stopped worrying so much about my work, being rejected and started sending it out instead. And after decades of yo-yo dieting, I started practising moderation and slowly and gradually lost more than £50 and kept it off. But the biggest and most life-altering change I made was the decision to end my 22-year relationship. After four years of courtship and 18 years of marriage, it was time to call it a day. We had tried and tried to make it work, but it just didn't work anymore and neither of us was happy. So, after years of hesitation, we separated and became friends who co-parent instead. We are now a family in two happier parts. He comes round for pancakes, we spend holidays together and once a year on what would have been our wedding anniversary, we have a family day. A day out to enjoy and celebrate all the positive things we shared. That moment when I nearly died and all the time I've spent listening to people talk about their own regrets finally made me click out of screensaver mode. It made me realise that we need to change the things that no longer make us happy and try to fully appreciate all the things that do. Living with regrets can feel like a very negative thing and yet they can also, if kept in perspective, act as a reminder of all the things we want to do and all the things we need to change if we just listen to them. Hearing about all these amazing stories has helped me to understand all that. I hope that maybe reading about them will help others to see it too. That was Having a Near-Death Experience Taught Me How to Live Better by Georgina Skull Read by Christine Bottomley. That's all from us. This 
has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Christine Bottomley and Joplin Sibtane and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Max Anderson and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. 